This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God. upon us and delivered us from our fear and despair. 
with your spirit ever present within us, we thus praise and glorify your precious name, O Lord. We love you with all of our being as you first loved us when you created us. We also thank you for sending Jesus Christ, our Savior, to be one of us, to die for us, and to be resurrected, promising new life for us, your people. So we praise you, love you, and adore you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in worship, and so we greet one another in the name of Christ. And because it is in Christ's name that we greet one another, our, wor our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We would be very pleased if everyone, members and guests alike, would please sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on your pew. You may sign it, send it down the pew and back again, and then we will have the advantage of each other's names. And likewise, we would be delighted if everyone would join us for a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall immediately after this service. That time of fellowship, uh, that, uh, time of fellowship takes place just down this hall, out the door to my right. Please do gather and have the opportunity to engage together in our common life. Let me highlight a few things from the announcements for your particular attention this week. You'll note that we have a virtual missions fair beginning. You can learn more about some of our mission partners through that. And you'll also note that we have an ongoing wishful thinking book study that concludes today after this service up in the McCall room. And Zia needs your spare shopping bags and there's a Linton Drive going on. There's just a lot going on that you can use to plug into the life of faith. I'd like to note as well that you were probably greatly uh, rejoicing at the return of part of the organ. It's not all back yet, and it could still go in any second, but we have contingency plans in case that does prove to be the case. Um, we share together in a common life, as I've noted before, and sometimes folks go from our midst to other locations. And so our last hymn today is chosen particularly because this will be Miles and Susan Davis's last Sunday here in Philadelphia. They are moving to a warmer place. So uh, please don't be strangers, Miles and Susan, and we, we will miss you, and we are grateful for all the years that you've spent with us and all you've done for this congregation. So thank you to Miles and Susan. With all these things noted, I'd like to call on Michael Smith for our Minute for History. Good morning. It is wonderful to be in this historic place. And this year, we will begin celebrating the 325th anniversary of this particular congregation. Not all of us, of course, have lived that whole time, but uh, there are some of us who've been around for quite a while. The question might come up, well, if we're 325 years old, are we actually the oldest uh, Presbyterian church in the United States? And there is argument about that, and I wanted to let you know 
that we do not claim to be the oldest uh, church, uh, Presbyterian church in the United States, but we probably are. And the reason that there is a little bit of doubt about the date is we do not celebrate the foundation of this church, which is 1698, until we called a ministry. We were meeting for many years before that in a, basically a trading store on uh, Buttonwood Street. And uh, you may hear that name Buttonwood uh, as you go into our parish hall. We call it Old, Old Buttonwood Hall, named after that place where we first gathered. There are a couple of things that we celebrated last year with the 150th anniversary of this particular building, and that was wonderful. But there are three things I want to point out today that are actually remnants and artifacts of the first Presbyterian church, and they are all important. The first one I'm going to point out is a plaque that exists in the narthex, and when you come in and you look, there are two plaques but I'm going to point out the one that celebrates the first Presbytery uh, meeting in the United States. Seven ministers gathered together in First Presbyterian Church and, and took on the full meaning of the Book of Order in our denomination. And it was there that policy uh, and our own polity began to be laid out. So we are historic in that point, in that particular plaque, is of importance. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about historically is that we do have a, a very important artifact. And again, when you think of things that are that historically old, there's some controversy about it. And I'll tell you what that is. But we do, in what we call the Beetle Room, named after not a particular role in the church, but actually one of our ministers, we have a chandelier. That chandelier is purported to have been in George Washington's home when he lived in the United when he lived in Philadelphia in the first government of the United States. For ten years, the capital of the United States was here, and Presbyterians were a big part of that. And when George Washington uh, moved from Philadelphia, there was a big auction for the materials he didn't want to move to Mount Vernon. There were two chandeliers one of which was noted not to be sold, and it returned back with him to uh, Mount Vernon. The other chandelier is the one that we have. It was called the parlor chandelier. In 1950, when First Presbyterian Church and Second Presbyterian Church reunited after hundreds of years of going their own separate ways, it was evaluated by Freeman's Auction House, and it was authenticated as being George Washington's chandelier. I followed up on that in about 2005, and uh, Freemans came back out and they looked at it, and they said, well, it's certainly a period piece, but the provenance is not able to be proven. You don't have any record to say how did it get to your church from there. So that led to a question, and we did have some interest in the chandelier, and PBS sent out an expert to look at the chandelier, and he concluded that he was pretty confident that it was uh, a Washington chandelier. And the reason for that is because it was made in England and he was able to trace uh, the component parts of it and what it looked like to have having been imported into Virginia at the time period that Washington would have bought it. So we claim it 
as a Washington chandelier, but no matter what, when you think about it, it's been hanging in one aspect of this church for several hundred years. But just being that close to history gives you a sense of 325 years of being a congregation. The third item I want to point out is actually a replica. We have the original on file with the Presbyterian Historical Society, and it is a letter from John Adams to the church, thanking them for providing a pew for members of the government of the United States. Now we have to go back a little bit today. We have a collection, uh, and that's the way we raise money. But in that particular time frame, the way money was raised for the operation of the church is the pews were sold or rented, and you could buy it or you could rent it. And so because all of the people who were rep representing the government of the United States were coming from different places, they had a pew back at their home church, so they were not going to be buying a pew. So the offer from First Presbyterian Church to, to provide a pew was a significant offer. And it also uh, was very important to note that the Presbyterians were noted George III, during the time of the Revolution, did write that he was particularly upset with those blank Presbyterians in the, United, in the colonies because they had a sense of a form of government, the government that we have, where we have different roles, we have uh, checks and balances in our policy. And so Presbyterianism was an important part of the whole Revolutionary War concept. As a matter of fact, three members of this congregation did sign the Declaration of Independence. And you could stretch that to being four because even though rightfully so, Benjamin Franklin is uh, claimed by Christ Church, he did write often about his attendance to uh, the First Presbyterian Church. As a matter of fact, one of his uh, letters about attending the church, he humorously regretted having brought so much money in his pocket to church because the minister talked him out of all of it. <laughs> but the Presbyterians were celebratory also because that particular First Presbyterian Church had just reopened because during the Revolutionary War, the British troops following George III's lead were particularly unenamored with Presbyterians and so each Presbyterian church in Philadelphia was used to house the British forces. And so the pews were taken as firewood and uh, the churches were used as stables. Now there's something biblical about that, you might think, but it was certainly a retribution and it was a celebration that the church had reopened. It was really a significant uh, event and it, because we know that members of that government came to stay or to, to uh, worship God in the First Presbyterian Church, it really struck me as I started doing a history as to who would be attending and sitting in those pews. And when I read that, of course, John Adams, who wrote the letter thanking, uh, was there, I saw that uh, Alexander Hamilton had attended the church. I thought, that meant he sang in our pews, and I thought, they should maybe make a musical. <laughs> I never considered it to be a rap, however, when I thought of it, but it is historical, 
And there are many more things that we're going to talk about over the next few months as we celebrate, again, think about it, 325 years. Thank you for being part of that history. Knowing that God will protect us, giving us strength and love, even while we persist in falling short of God's glory, love, and hope for us, let us now join together, seeking God's forgiveness and offering to God those times we fail to be the people and the church we are called to be. Let us pray together and then in a few moments of silence. Creator God, you stretch the heavens and fill the seas. You separated the night from the day and the dry land from the waters. And when you had created every living thing, you made us. From the dust of the earth, you raised us up and breathed your very breath of life into us. And yet, despite all the ways you have sustained us already, we doubt that you can breathe new life into the dried up bones of broken promises or missed opportunities or failed endeavors. We think our hope is dried up. You, however, are never through with us. Each new day awakens us with possibility and hope. So let us live into the fullness of what you offer us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we make our prayer. and the peace we share in Christ is fathomless. Knowing this, friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
come to the reading of scripture. Our first scripture lesson is Psalm 130. Listen for the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is, here ends the reading of the first lesson. I turn now to the second lesson, Romans 8. Verses 6 through 11. Listen for the word of the Lord. <clears throat> to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Here ends the second reading. Our final lesson is taken from the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, 
verses 1 through 14. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy to the bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come on them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I love a good story, don't you? By now, my predilection for whodunits is well known, but what really gets me is a story that captures something profound in a way that I see the author's intent. I'm talking about the way Tolstoy has the fallen Prince Andre musing on the sky as a metaphor, as a hint at the transcendent way that time slows down in key moments, while all around him a battle rages on. Or the way that Anna Gavalda uses foreshadowing in hunting and gathering to hint at the coming of a good death. Or maybe you prefer one of those deeply fulfilling family epics that give you a sense of who you are and where you came from. These are the family stories that are passed along generation to generation, the sort of stories that NPR StoryCorps is capturing. I remember once driving my grandfather to a doctor's appointment in the waning years of his life and being absolutely gobsmacked to learn that he had played the guitar in a dance hall band when he was a young man. He regaled me with stories from Mecklenburg County, North Carolina from a bygone era when the grading for the new buildings downtown was done with a drag pan behind a mule. His stories enriched me. They connected me with a sense of my history, a sense of belonging, perhaps. Stories can provide us with insight, comfort, understanding. Stories can help us see ourselves and see more deeply the world around us. Did you know that you are a part of God's story. You belong as much as those endless genealogies lay out in the Bible, the sons of begats of all of the above. Each of us has been adopted into God's story, adopted into that genealogy. The Apostle Paul is who tells us we are adopted into God's family and therefore God's story is our story. God's family story is our family story. A friend of mine likes to say that the creation redemption epic of God is a story that is big enough for all of us to live in. That means that Ezekiel's story is our story also. He needed a word of hope. So God gave him a vision. Do you need a word of hope from time to time? I surely do. Well, Ezekiel needed hope, and so God took Ezekiel out to the graveyard. God always seems to be doing things like that. You ask for hope and you get a graveyard. You start to wonder what God is all about when you ask for hope and get a graveyard. graveyard. 
They wander around among the bones for a while, and God sits Ezekiel down and says to him, Do you believe that these bones can yet live? They are bleached white. They are so dead. So Ezekiel answers in the smartest way possible. He dodges the question. Oh, Lord God, you know. And God says, prophesy to these bones, and you know what happens next. The toe bones connected to the foot bone. The foot bones connected to the heel bone. The heel bones connect. Well, I could do this all day. They come together, bone to bone, and flesh comes on the bones. And before Ezekiel is done, there is a whole animal standing right in front of him. And God says, prophesy to the wind. And Ezekiel does. And the animal that has been henceforth been dead as a doornail breathes. And it is alive. Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that God can make a handful of dried up old bones in a graveyard come to life? Well, if this is our story, it is surely a strange story in which to find ourselves. When Ezekiel writes about God reconstituting these bones, he borrows language from Daniel and Jeremiah, two of his faith ancestors who also told the story. He and his people are in a mess, so he looks back in his family tree, looks back at his family stories, and he remembers Jeremiah, who was always raving about what God was yet going to do. This is the very same Jeremiah who buried his underwear and then acted surprised when he dug it up and it was dirty. Jeremiah always seemed to be in a mess. Granted, he brought it on himself. I mean, who goes out and buys property when there is an invading army on the horizon? going to see that land again? It's almost like he knew something. It's almost like he remembered his story and knew that he would come back again to that land. Maybe not he personally, but his children or his grandchildren. And then there's Daniel, always talking about what God can do, rambling on about someone coming down out of the clouds and how good it was going to be. And if I had been Daniel, I'd have been a whole lot more concerned about the king throwing me in the fiery furnace or the lion's den. But I guess Ezekiel had heard so much about them, about their stories, that when he needed a vision of hope, he started to sound just like them. That's what happens when we pick up our stories, when we hear them and see ourselves in them. They plant us in our history. You don't get to pick your ancestors. I, I recently learned about my family name's origins, and let's just say I am descended from... Well, Rahab was one. Ezekiel and the Israelites around him are in a mess. And he needs to hear a word of hope so that he can bring a word of hope. And he starts looking at all these stories that his ancestors told. And God gives him a vision and he writes it down. And it starts sounding just like everything he's heard before. It really is the same 
from age to age. We are not the first generation to find the world a bit out of kilter, where nothing seems to be going quite right, where the left and the right mistrust one another, and folks sometimes say things at dinner parties that make you want to crawl out of your skin and go take a shower. Ezekiel's friends, Ezekiel's people, weren't treating each other right. And God calls him and says, I need you to talk to my people about it. And then all God gives him to say is the foot bones connected to the heel bone, the heel bones connected. But here's the rub. That sounds just like all the prophets that came before him because they weren't dealing with anything new under the sun either. They all sound alike because the ways we humans treat each other badly, the ways we miss the life that God wants us to have, just aren't all that imaginative. There is nothing we can dream up to louse up what God wants for us that God's people have not already tried at least once. Do you believe these, bo these bones can live again? Now hear the word of the Lord. Does it seem like we've heard a lot about how we treat each other lately? I don't dive into the particulars of popular culture all that much by design, but so much of what folks seem to want to argue about boils down to whether or not we want to treat people the way they want to be treated. Well, if that's the case, the Christians can start by behaving like Christians. Doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, God has planted us in a story of redemption. And I know, all of us being children of God, you would be, think it would be easy for humanity to get along, wouldn't you? What a load of hogwash. Of course it's not easy. If you have ever spent 20 minutes in a contentious family holiday gathering, you know that being together is sometimes work. But that's the point. Being together is sometimes work. That's the truth of grounding experiences and grounding influences in our lives. So often, allowing ourselves to be grounded and rooted is a matter of choice, of choosing to remember who we are, choosing to share our experiences, and choosing to share ourselves. Years ago, my Old Testament Professor Patrick Miller returned from the funeral of a close friend. As he was leading our class, he was visibly saddened by his loss, and he went through going over the syllabus and telling us exactly what would be expected of us. After he talked about the papers and the exams and the readings, he looked up with red-rimmed eyes over his round glasses, almost as if he were compelled to say it, and added, if you really want to know what it's all about, it's in here. And he held up 
his beat-up old Bible. And it may sound a little pietistic to point it out, but it is nonetheless true. His worn-out Bible, just like the Bibles in our pews, just like the one in your bathroom or the motel room nightstand, tell a story. It is a story of how God loves us and the hope that that gives us. It is a story of how God's love transforms us and how the love of God leads to hope for a brighter future. It tells us how God saves us both from and for. From suffocating, life-stifling self-absorption and for the call to be a light to the world, salt for the earth, sharers of God's story of grace. Why did you come to church this morning? I suspect that for some of you, most of you, you came here this morning to hear a word of grace, a word of hope. I suspect that a lot of you came here this morning needing to hear how God created us to be connected one to the other. And I suspect maybe one or two or maybe three or four need to hear the word of the Lord that God can even now breathe life into tired old bones. And mind you, it is a strange thing claiming that God's love can breathe into even the dead and tired places of life. It is a strange thing, and I will confess that from time to time, I'm just a little bit leery of what God can do when God sets God's mind to it. If God can breathe transforming power into the broken places of life, then it's not too great a stretch to know that God can take my self-serving desires, my not always quite courageous heart, and my sometimes not so fast brain, and do something really new with me. But if we're honest, I start squirming when I think about God expecting me to participate in the transformation. Maybe you do also. Because when we get down to the talk of how God is in the transformation business, we come face to face with the reality that God is not in the business of providing cafeteria-style a la carte transformation. We can't say, I'll take a little of the kindness, but leave my avarice alone. Splash in a touch of generosity, but don't touch my pettiness. So I confess, I'm not always comfortable with a God who can bring the bones back to life, because the minute we start talking about transformation, we don't get to determine the outcome. That's how it was with Ezekiel. 
Israel was in a mess. Granted, they got themselves into the mess, but they're in a mess. They don't think that they or God can or will do anything about it. And maybe you can identify with that this morning. Maybe you can't. But here's the real grace of God. God doesn't wait for us to get it. Instead, God just sends someone to say, now hear the word of the Lord. And so as we wind our way through the rest of Lent, toward the table of the Last Supper, the crucifixion and the resurrection, what surer way to encounter hope than to remember the stories of what God has already done. Or as William Sloan Coffin so aptly put it, what could better symbolize the defeat of death than those tombs that God caused to open up even before Christ was laid in his own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
together, let us say what we believe using the words of the ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. O Lord, we thank you today for your blessings that you bestow upon us all. Lord, today may we all give with gladness and sincerity. No one gives a present to someone with reluctance. And we should never give you what already belongs to you with reluctance either. So bless these tithes and offerings, we pray. Amen.
blood is yours already. So we ask that you will bless to the work of your church and your kingdom these tithes and offerings. Amen. Just as Ezekiel's story is our story, as the pastor pointed out, so let us pray in the spirit of Ezekiel for transforming love and transforming grace in our lives. Let us pray. Mighty God, creator of the stars and the moon, the oceans and the mountains, and tender God, creator of every tiny baby born into this world, and steadfast God, the one to whom we cling in times of sorrow and struggle, and patient God, the one who waits for our return after we've wandered away because our lives are going just fine for a while. So we turn to you now, because no matter what stage of life we might be experiencing, the fact is that we need you. We need you to draw us to yourself again. We need you to assure us of your love for us and your hand in the world. We need you to break through the gloom, to walk with us in struggle, to teach us how to forgive, to let the light of hope peek into our hearts. We need you to remind us of our blessings. We pray for the world around us, for people living in war-torn areas, fearing for their lives, civilians and soldiers in Ukraine. We pray that caring and committed nations will stand with the people of Ukraine, helping to supply their needs. We pray for people whose countries' economies cannot sustain the basic needs of food and security, and for innocent people anywhere affected by government oppression and politics among nations. We continue to pray for people at our borders, for our own government to work again to provide life and liberty and equality for all. Loving God, we pray for ourselves, too, and for the people we love. 
for those in their last days of life, for those who are retired, for those who struggle with chronic illness, for those so worried about a loved one they don't know where to turn, for our city's youth who need an education, a job, and income, and not guns with which to kill each other. May your presence with them be palpable. We pray for our parents and our grandparents, for our children and our grandchildren. We pray for the children of the world, that they could count on this earth we inhabit to be treated well and sustained for generations to come. Cultivate us for good action. May our actions toward and with our neighbors bring glory to your name. Thank you, dear Lord, for your forgiveness and mercy for being a God who shares in the human struggle, for giving us your breath of life and making us mindful of our many blessings. Now hear us as we pray together the prayer taught to his disciples by our Lord Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Ezekiel asked for hope, and God gave him a graveyard. But isn't that where all our hope will come from in just a few short weeks? God, God gives us the graveyard when we ask for hope because it is from the empty tomb that our hope will come. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.